Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. In that intro, I always say that um, I cover utopian thinkers and I am aware that I've only actually covered one person since I started doing uh, the podcast. I just want to say, um, I don't know exactly when this will happen because quite often I have plans to do stuff that ends up taking longer than anticipated or has to happen at a different time than I'd like to for whatever reason. But I do intend to cover a couple more people because I think that's a... I love looking at um, fiction and you know films and uh, books and stuff like that, but I think looking at um, particular people is also uh, can also be fascinating and um, inspiring, I guess, and uh, very useful. So I do intend to do an episode at some point on Buckminster Fuller. I think I've said that before. Um, who is a very interesting. Yeah, definitely a utopian the way he he uh, thinks about the world. He's kind of um, interesting to me as a his role as kind of an inventor in a way that we don't see anymore. I think in a way, like I think we now have um, the the kind of role of the inventor has been kind of subsumed by like startup culture. Like the the inventor now would be someone who would who would uh, come up with some like tech startup business or. Invention would be like designing a new form for the next Apple product, like the the way it looks or whatever. Like it used to be this. Uh, I feel like it's kind of old fashioned now. This idea of the inventor, someone who thinks about creations that address real problems that the world has, and thinks about their inventions in terms of how they can, yeah, address the problems of the world and make the world a, a better place. Whereas. Um, yeah, now it would be like, where's a gap in the market or whatever. That would be what the, the modern inventor would look at. So anyway, uh, before I go to one about Mr. Fuller, I think he would be interesting to cover. Not to mention all his like plans for like cities that float in the sky and all this other kind of weird stuff. Also, it was recently the 100-year anniversary of the death, or, or the murder, I should say, of um, Rosa Luxemburg. I... If I had planned better, <laughs> then I would have uh, had something ready for that. Um, but as it happens, it just reminded me that that's someone I'd like to cover. So yeah, I'll try and get something on Rosa Luxemburg at some point as well. Um, but anyway, let's go. Let's talk about uh, what this episode is about, and that is Black Panther, the twenty eighteen Marvel film. Joining me to talk about the film is Deirdre Holman. Didri spent a long time, uh, 15 years, at the Schomburg Centre for Research in Black Culture at the New York Public Library. And more recently, she is the um, co-founder and creative director of the Black Comics Collective. She's someone who's very interested in Afrofuturism and popular culture and obviously comics and those things come together in, uh, in Black Panther. So she's a great person to have on to, to talk about that. Very quickly, before we get on to that conversation, thanks to those of you who have uh, signed up on Patreon to support me doing this at um, patreon.com slash utopianhorizons, where I've been putting out bonus episodes, 
um, and we will continue to do so. Possibly going to start looking at capitalist realism soon. Um, and uh, yeah, a couple of other ideas uh, in the pipeline there. So um, yeah, if you if you want to have a look at that, see what I've been putting out in terms of bonus episodes, just yeah, go to patreon.com slash utopian horizons and you can see that there. Um, I don't think I mentioned this on my last episode, which probably came out after it, but as I forgot, um, I also, I recently guested on a podcast. I was on a podcast called No Cartridge Audio, which if you don't know, is a podcast about video games. And I went on there to talk about a game called The Return of the Obra Dinn, which, yeah, it's a very uh, cool, interesting game. Uh... And yeah, if you're interested in video games and you're not aware of that podcast, then you, you might want to check that out. I just thought I'd mention that. Anyway, that's enough of that. On to my conversation with Deirdre about Black Panther. Joining me now is Deirdre Holman. Um, thank you very much for joining me, Deirdre. You're welcome. So Deirdre is um, founder and creative director of the Black Comic Collective. Um, before we get on to what we're going to chat about today, I just wondered if you could um, tell people who are listening what the, the Black Comics Collective is, if they might be interested in that. Sure. Thank you for having me. The Black Comics Collective is a forum for connecting comics creators of color with the communities that really crave their work. And so I, I am a co-founder of the Black Comic Book Festival at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture that happens annually. Um, and out of that festival came my desire to want to keep connected to both the creative community and all of the fans and uh, readers of comics. And so I created the collective to be a, a, an organization that can really unite um, those two communities around special events, um, around readings, and also using social media to to keep everyone informed of the new products and new ideas that are being shared. Okay, cool. Well, there's definitely some people that listen to the podcast who are into comics, so uh, yeah, go and check that out. Um, Terrific. Yeah. So um, anyway, what we what we are going to be talking about today is is the film Black Panther which is a film that obviously uh, a lot, uh, sparked quite a lot of conversation when it came out and there were, there were lots of people talk introduced to terms like Afrofuturism who may not have um, heard that well before. Um, yeah, so that, I thought that would be a good starting point. So I just wondered if you could uh, explain to people who may not know what exactly Afrofuturism is. Sure. To me, Afrofuturism is a concept that represents the fact that people of African descent actually survive in the future and how they do that, what that looks like, uh, the policies and the beliefs and the principles that guide that you know future existence um, create a whole world of thinking around um, arts and technology and culture and the environment and and architecture and clothing and language. Um, and so Afrofuturism is a term that people in all of those fields use to talk about, you know, how will we survive? How will we live in the future? Um, 
under circumstances that we can now imagine are possible for ourselves. And so we will not buy into an extinction um, philosophy or any kind of dystopic uh, philosophy, but we will think about how can we use the technologies and knowledge and the language and the creativity that we have to survive and to thrive in the future. Okay. So, I mean, I think that it gets very easy or uh, it'd be very easy to be reductive about it and just think of it as an, as, as an aesthetic and just thinking about the, um, so the future just looks a bit African basically, whereas it's exactly. a, what you're saying is it's a lot more than, than that. But then not, not to say that aesthetics can't be a, a part of it, of course, but. Aesthetics are a big part of it. And I think what we see is we see in popular culture, the aesthetics are the first things that begin to surface and begin to be consumed by a broader public. But I think if you look into philosophy, into science and into architecture and into design and into health, you'll see people who are Afro-futurist thinkers doing work, but it's not necessarily in the pop culture conversation. Mm, yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, obviously this is, uh, Black Panther is a kind of pop culture way into that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so this fi- this film is one, obviously a podcast about Utopia and there is a Utopia in this film, um, which is called Wakanda. For could you could you maybe um, describe Wakanda a bit for maybe people who haven't seen the film, and then maybe maybe just uh, talk a bit about what uh, what kind of strikes you as important or, or unique about Wakanda? I think the whole premise of Wakanda in Black Panther is that it's a place that has not been colonized um, by the West, and so without colonization um, influencing the political structure and uh, kind of everything else about how a nation can be governed. You see in Wakanda uh, a place that has that is not only sovereign, but uh, I guess you could say kind of trans-ethnic, <laughs> um, a place that is relying on its own natural resources to supply uh, energy and food and uh, even protection to itself. Um, So there's no, it's not exploiting other places and spaces either. And you also see a place that because it hasn't been disturbed for its existence, a place that has been allowed to develop. It's a a vision of Africa that um, has been able to develop to become a first world, as we would consider it, a first world nation without any interruption or disruption or war or conflict. Hmm. I think that's uh, like you said there about um, not being, you know, they're a country that hasn't been had their natural resources exploited. Obviously, they have in this world a, a fictional natural resource called um, called vibranium, which is kind of this like almost magical magical resource that allows them to do incredible things, but. Yeah, like you say, it's almost um, the the fiction is it almost is a stand-in for Africa having had a natural resource that hasn't been exploited by, yes. for example, <laughs> uh, my country of birth, which is uh, responsible for much yes. of that. <laughs> it's a it's an interesting concept, and you see how um, 
how in need the West is of vibranium and even how, you know, the through the Marvel fictions, <laughs> you see how vibranium can be used to heal, it can be used to build, but it can also be weaponized. And so it, it kind of brings with it all those human conflicts <laughs> around how do we use the power that we have, you know, do we use it to, you know, to build and protect ourselves and to create cities that support everyone, or do we use it uh, to devise weapons and uh, continue to, you know, war and battle uh, between ourselves? Mm. What do you think of the kind of, because in some ways it um, feels like quite a uh, traditional place in the sense of maintaining like traditional culture but it's definitely not um how do i say this it's not kind of fetishizing some like uh historical like tribal like this is the this 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 is the future at at the same time right and i I, wakanda i mean in the Marvel story, Wakanda is the present. So it's really interesting to think about it, right? It's It represents the present. Yeah, so it's in, sure. the, it's in the same time as we are in. But what it does, um, I think for notions of Africa, is it shows that there has been cultural retention from you know what may be considered ancient or modern Africa, but at the same time, the technology and the communication systems, the science, the art, and, and the way things work is completely contemporary. You know, and and in our view from the West, it seems advanced. So we call that the future because we're not as advanced as Wakanda scientifically and technologically. So we think that's in the future, something to come. But Wakanda has it now. You know, you see the, yeah. <laughs> what it challenges us, it challenges us to think about, are we really the first world? Are we really at the forefront or is there, uh, you know, a, a place where people are more advanced than even we? Do you think it also um, functions in some way as a, as a kind of symbol of what Africa could have been without the uh, exploitation that it's suffered. Absolutely. I do. I think, you know, the humanitarian in me says if we as nations around the world would cooperate, we could probably quadruple our advancement versus the, you know, the competition and the exploitation. So yes, I think um, it seizes on the idea that Africa could, you know, have progressed itself in remarkable ways without colonization. Mm. It's a very uh, appealing um, vision of the the city as well. I think it's it's kind of because I think when we think of the city in cities often represented like you say it's not it's actually I, I called it the future and you're right to say it's the present day but I called it that because like it kind of feels like the future because they're so advanced. It but does. When we see the city in the future it's quite often this topic and we think of things like very corporate like policed spaces and we think of cities as being very branded like cities all look the same they all have the same this feels like um yeah it's a more kind of green version of the city a very vibrant and uh yeah very a place that's very alive if you see what i mean 
I do. And I, I feel that too. And there is a connection to kind of the agriculture, right? With the rhinoceroses mm-hmm. <laughs> and the mm-hmm. farms. Um, there is, I think there's just a, a some sort of relationship between um, the way, uh, I guess, rural environments look or are shaped in the future. You know what I mean? I think it's the future isn't necessarily all like metropolitan city. There's a vision for it that's very green and very rooted in uh, a more rural landscape, a natural landscape. Mm. Something uh, I thought was worth mentioning, um, it's, as we kind of suggested, I think it seems like quite an appealing place to be. It seems like, I would say, a very advanced civilization. They've got lots of great stuff because of all the, the technology and so on. It's probably worth saying that it's um, not a democracy, which isn't necessarily presented as being a bad. It's not presented as being a bad thing, really, in the in the fiction. Right. I wouldn't say. I don't know if you agree, but uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's a monarchy. So I don't know that throws up a problem, even though I don't think it's really addressed in the film. I don't know. I don't know what you think. It's definitely not addressed in the film. And I think I think it's left for, um, like, even in the comics, I think it's left for debate and for conversation. So, yes, I think the writers that take up writing stories for Black Panther in the comics will really grapple with what it means to be, you know, sovereign or a monarchy in this democratic world because the film um, shows uh, T'Challa really saying, okay, I'm ready to go out into the world. I'm ready to, you know, step on the stage of the United Nations and participate. Um, I think in a somewhat, you know, in a diplomatic way (laughs) with other nations. And so I think he'll as a uh, a king, as a ruler, he'll begin to deal with that. And I, I would think that even in our imagination socially, it was touched on a little bit with um, M'Baku and the tribe from the mountains, that not everyone agrees with the, <laughs> the, the politics and with the monarchy and how things should be governed. I think there's a space in the imagination for us to really kind of deal with whether that is, you know, it seems to be working for Wakanda, but we don't know necessarily if it's the only way it could it could be. Yeah. While you while you mentioned the comics, actually, because I don't know the comics at all, are the is the movie like pretty faithful to the comics, or are they kind of big differences? Definitely, I think the movie uh, gives us um, the movie gives us the the framework for the comics that comes from the comics, so like how uh, Black Panther um, kind of came to be. The movie actually starts way a little bit later than the comics start in in the timeline because Captain America and the Avengers have several stories that involve Black Panther um, and Wakanda that predates the film that we saw. And so, um, you know, there were uh, battles between Black Panther and Captain America. Um, It's how um, the Avengers know about Wakanda and that's how Vibranium even gets to the West. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of backstory that the film incorporates, but uh, doesn't address. 
And so, yes, it, it's it's faithful, but it has its own little moment. This moment um, that involves Killmonger and its intersection into the whole Avengers story with Thanos. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was when this came out, there was a, a lot of discussion about the importance of this film in terms of um, diversity and representation. Um, and I just wanted to ask uh, your thoughts on that, whether you, whether you kind of agree that this is uh, important and, and why that might be. I think it's important on many levels because I think um, particularly, so that's important on two levels. One for African-Americans or African descendant people, to see themselves imagined in this wonderful and and entertaining Marvel universe as superheroes, as um, rulers of our own nations, and um, to be just in this very globalized conversation about futures and power and all of that. But I think it's also important for um, the rest of the world also, to contemplate um, Africa and Africans and African descendants as part of a larger story. I mean, for African-Americans, our ethnicity and our kind of our story as Americans is a very uh, subjugated story. There's triumph triumph over, you know, slavery and oppression, but there's still a big struggle here. But to extend our narrative and our story back to where we were Native people and then where we were truly Indigenous and, and to show a story where um, that those traditions and that culture is very positive and very productive and progressive is, is an important thing because you know, no one wants to get locked into one stereotype or one racialized ideology about who you are and who you can be. And I think for the, for all of us uh, globally, it's, it's providing a link to uh, a native land um, that for us, it's still an imaginary link, so I don't want to forget that. Yeah. But it's it it's an imaginary link that's now in in the same you know literary and cinematic playing field as as everyone else's, and so it's it's very important. I think it felt to me like the film was kind of aware of that as well. I don't know what you thought, but I I thought of stuff like when the um when the ship comes, uh, like the, the big ship comes and you see the kids on the street like looking up like, whoa. It, it felt like it was saying this time in the ship, there's a black person there. And like, do you, right. you know what I mean? Like, and it felt like yes. those kids were, they had something, it, that ship is obviously imaginary, but it still, it still felt like there was almost a symbol, like it's imaginary, but it's still something that you can look to and like draw power from in some way. Yes, it's aspirational. It's it's aspirational. And it also is affirming. And so that's the thing, like, you know, for all the 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 African descendant scientists and uh, engineers, it's affirming Like, yes, they can be a part of building this technological uh, future. Um, and I love what the film did in terms of bridging Compton to 
uh, Africa, you know, in terms of a lineage, that's something else that it did. It bridged, um, you know, African descendants from Wakanda to African Americans. So Killmonger's mother and father kind of represent that bridge. And that's, I mean, that bridge is happening with, you know, African people who have immigrated to the United States and then are, you know, making families with African Americans, it it becomes a real bridge so that the children inherit a direct link to a place in Africa where they can claim heritage and origin. Um, Whereas many other generations of African Americans have a broken link in that, in that sense, because there isn't a direct way to trace uh, origins. And so that, that kind of bridging of the link of stories and the connection between African Americans, is like closing a, a loop. That's really important too, in terms of representation and a sense of, of belonging in the world. Mm. I, th- I think it's quite rare as well in, uh, should I say like, I don't know, big budget cinema or like maybe I could say more broadly like mainstream culture, whatever that you have black a black culture and society represented as superior or uh or at least yeah in terms of the technology they are they are superior whereas i think more yeah more commonly black culture has been represented if not explicitly then implicitly as somehow inferior to um to uh what white western culture if that actually even exists but uh so yeah i think it's really it really stands out and it's nice to see that this can be actually represented as superior. I think that's valuable in some way. I think so too. I think so too. And I think, um, I think it's important to note that it's, it's about, if you're going to use the words inferior and superior, it's it's really about, I know it's tricky. They're tricky words for all of us, (laughs) but it's, I, I think it's, it's about, uh, resources and intellectual properties and technological advancements. It's really, it's not about oppression or racial hierarchy. You know, it's a different kind of form. It's a different form than what we're used to in, in our lexicon when we say inferiority and superiority, because I don't think um, Wakandans stand on any uh, moral superiority. I don't think they stand on any kind of racial superiority. I think they're equal to other nations, but um, in some ways because of their resources and again, because of their, that they've, the fact that they've been kind of closed off, they've, you know, advanced pretty rapidly, but it's to see like how that works when you're plugged into the rest of the world. Yeah. It's not a a nice, like as you say, um, showing that yeah power is the kind of a question of resource as opposed to any kind of inherent it yeah. is and that comes across very clearly i think <laughs> so yeah that's that's nice yeah. um i'll say one more thing because it i like how you pulled out power and so power is important and it's it's awesome but it's also about can you hold it right like every great empire in in our history has you know held a significant amount of power but the the struggle is whether or not you can hold it share it and how you use it, you know, I don't. So again, I think there's an Wakanda stands equally to, you know, other empires and nations in terms of its, its own power, but then it's the interplay that always challenges it. 
Mm. I think there's um, one of the really interesting things about this film is the way it kind of it tries to deal with, not not deal with, but addresses at least approaches a problem that Utopia has always had to deal with. Because uh, we should say for anyone who doesn't know, Wakanda is kept as kind of like a secret society like they use their technology to hide from the rest of the world the rest of the world thinks it's a really poor third world country um, right. and they keep themselves uh kind of locked off and we've always had throughout the history of utopia utopias have tended to be like islands or uh, that's obviously a really common name <laughs> because you always encounter the problem of what's outside utopia and, and how do those things kind of come together so that that's quite a interesting part of this film i think like i said i don't think it has any answers but that's a key no. concern of it right right and then so as a, a a thinker a scholar and a teacher i think those questions are so important for us you know as consumers of this art or this literature or this cinema as those are the questions we should really be thinking about you know mm. really good questions mm. for us as as human beings yeah and it's uh, I, and i like the fact that they so we think again we think of this we see this place as being oh this is a really great place and they have all this stuff but you do say stuff so like for one of the characters for example starts talking about refugees and he says oh you let the refugees and then they bring their problems with them and so then we see that we still have uh the, the the kind of desire to like we have this perfect society this is for us like we can't let these outside people in they will they're going to cause us problems. So yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting the way it kind of showed how that utopian mindset could become quite problematic. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I mean, in isolation, we can we can be great nations, but again, you know, what about everybody else? <laughs> yeah. So that so that's obviously I think that brings on to us onto kind of one of the, the key. Uh, key questions of the film. So the, the character of Killmonger, who is uh, yes. who is an American, uh, who's as you mentioned, he's uh, also his uh, father is from Wakanda, so he's he's uh, Wakandan and American. But um, he's grown up in America. I think he's very much he speaks with an American accent. He's very much kind of coded as being American. Um, it, one of the things that I saw uh, a lot of people criticising the film, a lot of um, African-American people as well, were kind of very unhappy about the way that they felt the film was kind of setting up uh, African blackness versus US blackness and kind of yeah. US uh, and kind of African-American being portrayed as kind of a... Yeah, in very simple terms, African blackness has been good and American blackness has been somehow violent. And uh, yeah, so I, I just wanted to, to see how, how you feel about that, if you agree with those criticisms in any way. Uh, I think it's complicated. So I don't know if I could uh, agree with any one of those uh, those scenarios, but I think, whew, I don't want to get in trouble <laughs> later. <laughs> but I think it's, it's valid for Africans, let's, you know, in this Wakandan sense, I think in the framework of the film, I think it's valid for Wakandans to critique the part, the part of African-Americans that is American. Okay. That is um, a militaristic, that is um, oppressive. I think that is, 
individualistic and self-serving and prone to violence. I think it's it's questionable some of those attributes that, you know, as Americans, African American people also embody certain beliefs and ideas um, that can be questioned by other cultures and nations. I think it's fair. I think it's fair game. Okay. <laughs> um, so I don't think they were, I just think they were pointing out the fact that we, as African Americans, it's important to be self critical as well in terms of how we've internalized some of the values and beliefs that are, you know, the downside of Westernization and colonization. And I think that's a I think that's a valid critique and self critique to be thinking about and talking about. Okay. That's an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about it that way before and it makes a lot of sense. Um I suppose I, I suppose I can see the, the problem comes is because I guess um that message could be easy to lose just because because of the because America is I think it's fair to say America is a, a racist state still. And black people have been represented so often as being violent and do you know what I mean those things have been represent have been represented as traits of black people as opposed to traits of Americans, if you see what I mean. Yes, yes, um, yes. But I so I, th- I, th- I think that's why some people read it that way. But uh, yeah, the way you've described it is uh, interesting as well. I can see how that makes sense. Yeah. So I think I think that's an important thing to look at. I think, you know, the way you know, black people in America have been portrayed is as people suffering under, you know, systemic oppression, responding to that, resisting that, but also having a lot of troubles with, you know, what is the root out of um, the position that we're here, we're in, in here, especially under kind of this, stranglehold that is like racism and systemic oppression. And so, you know, I think it's an unfair characterization at large that the culture has for all of its its symptoms of its position um, versus what it what it could and would be if if left to heal and to thrive and to progress as a culture. And so those those portrayals of African Americans are are problematic. But I think if you if you compare Killmonger to someone like Muhammad Ali, right, and his very famous position that um, he didn't want to go to war against the Vietnamese because he very clearly saw himself as not embracing America's empirical like ideology that I should go to war against these other people who don't have, who aren't taking issue with me and my power and my place in this world. And so why should I fight for you? Right. Why should I fight for you? uh, The U S on these principles, whereas Killmonger embodied Mm -hmm. those principles and, you know, Mm -hmm. drew strength and, fed his grief and his vengeance through those principles and therefore is being critiqued for having them. Whereas we look at Muhammad Ali as a piece, someone who responded with um, non-action and peace and tried to remove himself from that, whereas Killmonger embodied it. 
on a very larger scale, we can extrapolate that these are the choices um, or just how complicated our status as African-Americans are. Like we're trying to do, to live and thrive in this world as Americans, but it's not all of it. It's not every piece of this um, this country's politics and ideologies do we support and, and embody. So it's interesting. It's complicated as I started to say, it's very complicated. Yeah, it's interesting. That it's, uh, yeah. Could you, could you maybe kind of, uh, again, just for people who haven't seen the film, could you kind of explain what the kind of conflict is between Killmonger and Wakanda, like what he, what he wants versus what they want? So the short story is that um, T'Chaka, T'Challa's father, and Killmonger's father, whose name I don't recall, were brothers. And so they had equal rights to the throne. However, T'Chaka killed Killmonger's father, suspecting him of uh, betraying Wakanda. And so he does have, he is royal. Killmonger is a uh, Wakandan royal. And simply comes back to Wakanda to challenge T'Challa, the now son of T'Chaka, who's king, um, to rule Wakanda because he would have naturally had that right had he been in Wakanda, but he has to come to Wakanda to challenge the king and and to fight for his place. And he is in some way kind of continuing his father's legacy in some way and that the reason well the the reason that the betrayal was he was uh if i remember correctly he was basically like collecting wakandan technology to give to um kind of african-americans fighting against oppression in in, resistance yeah and giving away wakandan technology and vibranium was a big no-no for them because obviously it's meant to be a secret um so Yeah, that's continuing on as well, right? Like he, this is one of the things I found about <laughs> quite interesting about uh, Killmonger is he, um, he's presented as uh, these negative traits you've talked about that he embodies, like violence and uh, all these all these things. That's very present, and we see him being very brutal and like you know killing people with that. But his kind of his project is kind of quite sympathetic in that he's yes, it's quite a difficult uh, thing because he's. Well, for for a start, his his father being murdered, which for trying to help effectively uh, a repressed community is that sympathetic. And his basic idea, right, is you're keeping all this technology for yourself, and I want to kind of liberate the world. Right, but he wants to liberate liberate the world through like mass violence, and so is that the mm-hmm. right choice? And I think between. Killmonger and T'Challa, that's the question. Um, and even Killmonger's point of view that, I mean, that's when it, they try, again, fiction, but they try to add, you know, what's a little bit maniacal about uh, Killmonger is his um, kind of lack of regard for tradition and his desire to for world domination by burning, you know, by like just, uh, and not necessarily representing um, a path through revenge that as he represents someone who's, you know, decided that revenge and annihilation is my only path and then I shall reign eternal, which 
and comic book lore, you know, that's <laughs> always a bad idea. That's like always the this idea that, you know, you can just take revenge, kill everyone that ever, you know, transgressed against you and then rule supreme. We tend to believe it can't work that way. And so that's the uh, a conflict as well um, that comes with Killmonger. But I agree that his project and his motivations are extremely sympathetic sympathetic and rooted in something very real. Um, and it's the problem of a, an isolated Wakanda that didn't come back to save or to avenge the Africans that were stolen and, and brought to America. And I mean, I think for African-Americans, that's, that's a big uh, wound, you know, it's a big wound for African-Americans. And that concept is that we weren't saved um, by um, our our brethren or in Africa is is a somewhere deep in our narrative. Mm. Did you think I don't know whether this is unfair or not, but like maybe maybe it's because kind of comic kind of it's I I, I don't know comics particularly well, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I'm thinking that it's kind of normal for comics to kind of deal in like uh, almost archetypes or like yes uh, yeah. So I don't know, but I I felt that. So yeah, maybe that's why, and and it is also a mainstream film. But I kind of felt it was trying to work a bit too hard to make him a villain at some points, in the sense of like he he, he would say things like "rise up and kill them all and their children." And it was just kind of like right. that thing was like, "Oh, he wants to kill kids. He's definitely bad." And I, I don't know. I just <laughs> I just felt like, um, like as we've suggested, there's a lot to be sympathetic with about what he wants to basically. His idea is bring utopia to everyone. And it feels like, I don't know, it could have been a bit more uh, subtle, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if you, if you agree or not. But as I say, maybe I'm just being unfair. Maybe it's the way, you know, comic books deal in archetypes, maybe. I think it is. I think I would I would allow a little bit of that. I mean, it, I would give that over to the genre to make these really broad, clear uh, archetypes kind of deal with their dilemmas in kind of black and white ways. However, the Marvel universe is probably the, in my opinion, <laughs> the better of them in, in dealing with some of the more gray, subtle complications of these ideas. I think it's what's allowed the Marvel universe to have such endless, endless um, relevance to every generation that takes up writing um, stories in them is that we expect that they're going to get into gray area and this Killmonger T'Challa struggle or debate is a part of that gray area. Um, even more recently, the the conversations around um, the Avengers and Thanos, it's, it's gray, like it's gray, these ideas. And I, again, as I said earlier, it is in the gray areas that we can either reconcile or annihilate one another. These and the ideas that are in the gray area, it's it's the work that we have to do. Um, I think as world cultures and as people, we need to resolve all the stuff that's in the gray. <laughs> we need to be thinking about it. Uh, I want to ask you about another character in the film, which is the um, CIA guy, who's kind of. Yeah, I thought this was kind of a strange inclusion, this like CIA good guy, particularly 
so again, I don't know the Black Panther comics. I assume that Black Panther takes some inspiration from the Black Panther Party and uh, all the things that happen there. So bearing in mind the kind of what secret services and law enforcement did in relation to the Black Panthers, um, that kind of felt, yeah, not particularly uh, appropriate for me to have this like CIA good guy who kind of inexplicably decides to help a uh, powerful African nation out. I thought that was weird. It's weird, but I think the filmmaker, Ryan Coogler, being a, a son of Compton and uh, very familiar with the Black Panther Party, I think he dealt with it in a really pretty genius way. I think the CIA agents, is, which, you know, for general popular culture and, and, and movies, those are the guys who are coming to save the world. They have all the information. They're going to maneuver. They have the strategy. They're the, they're the ones that are going to figure it all out. But in Wakanda, the CIA agent is dealt with as he's not trusted. He's called out to be a colonizer. Uh, things are being hidden from him. The uh, M'Baku you know, silences him, saying, we don't need your opinion. We're about to to figure out our next steps ourselves. And so I think the filmmaker kind of plays with the idea of the white guy having all the answers in all of these very subtle moments. And I think African-American audiences recognize that. And, you know, if you view the film with African-Americans or, you know, people just who are conscious of that conflict, um, you could see I mean, it's there, it's an, a powerful thing to see, you know, the guy who's considered to be the smartest guy in the room in so many films and so much culture be silenced by a black leader. You know, that's an, a very powerful image. Now, he didn't he didn't shoot him or punch him in the face to silence him. He just kind of barked at him and said, hold your place. This is not your country. We're capable of figuring this out. <laughs> on our own. And so that's um, a very powerful piece of all of this. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Nice kind of reversal of position and power. Absolutely. It was definitely played with. Yeah. Okay. And um, what did you think about the the role of uh, women in the film? Because um, obviously we can talk about the kind of uh, positive representation of uh, black characters and, and that kind of diversity, but I also thought, uh, yeah, w- women had a very prominent role in this film. Um, they were they're the kind of some of the, the toughest characters in the film. They were beating people up in awesome ways and jumping on top of cars and all this stuff. And we also had the the other side of it in right. terms of the intelligence as well. We had the uh, I've forgotten the character's name, but she's kind of like Q in James Bond with like all the gadgets and like she. Oh had yeah, Siri. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but then, yeah, at the same time. It's difficult to escape the fact that, as we mentioned before, this is a monarchy. They all serve a man. So, yeah, I, d- I just wanted to get your opinion on that and how where you, where, what you thought about the, the role of women in the film. I think the role of women in the film is, is amazing. I think um, there's a lot of gender politics that's being dismantled by all the roles that the women occupy. Even in the monarchy, there's a queen um, and then... Zuri, the technological genius, is a princess. And um, in the comics, she even gets the opportunity to become 
the ruler of Wakanda. She becomes the Black Panther. Um, And so she's, yes, (laughs) um, she's empowered in all the ways that T'Challa is empowered. There's no limit to who she is and her role in society based on her gender. And I think there's um, a lot of that throughout the film, even the warriors being men and women. And there's the a couple, you know, a general male and a general female who are married in Wakanda. Um, I think that's amazing. And um, again, gets us thinking about equity, um, gender equity in fantastic ways. It's great. Cool. Um, well, I went to, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was um, the, the kind of end of the film and Again, I was kind of looking at this in the lens. So I, I've, I did, did an episode, I can't remember when, not too long ago, but I did an episode on the Black Panthers and I'd just finished reading a, a book. Uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, I can't remember the title, The History and Politics of the Black Panther Party was the subtitle. Um, but So I had, I kind of had that on my mind when I was watching it. And yeah, I don't know what you felt about it, but it seemed to be that it didn't really pay heed to that legacy in terms of the, the Black Panthers are very inspiring um, politics and very much building their own tools of power, like outside of the system, like in terms of their community programs. And obviously also prepared to use violence, which touches in with, with some of the stuff that's filmed. And this felt like a kind of very play the game by our rules kind of ending to me mm-hmm. in the sense of, you know, they have like, a nice little outreach center that they build for like science and stuff. And like you, you mentioned, they're doing the UN speech. It's right. a very kind of, yeah, feel good. It makes sense in terms of it being like, you know, mainstream film right. culture thing. But I just wondered whether you had those similar feelings. Like to me, it didn't seem to connect to that. Again, maybe the comics do it differently. I don't know, but it didn't seem to connect to that black Panther, the legacy of the black Panthers for me. I think I- so I guess I agree. It doesn't connect to that legacy, but it makes sense to me that it doesn't because T'Challa doesn't come from that. Um, he comes from what he, you might consider a more diplomatic approach to things. And even there are more, it's Zuri who has more radical ideas about actually leaving Wakanda and, uh, and it's um, Lupita Nuango's role um who actually feels that Wakanda should support the other refugee crisis crises in other parts of Africa. And so I think T'Challa as king is not as radical as his sister and his uh, potential love interest, the, the soldier uh, around him, the other women around him. And so his first choices are not radical choices. His, his first choice to invest in the community, however, does reflect a connection to, like you said, Black Panthers community-based um, resource building, and then, but his choice to try diplo- diplomacy is one of T'Challa's, I think. <laughs> so I, I don't, I just don't think T'Challa is radical as radical yet. <laughs> so I'll just one final question to, go, to to I suppose what I would ask is, do you? Do you see that kind of see that like diplomatic 
ending that T'Challa represent as being what is important about the film or what struck you about the film? Or would you, is there somewhere else where you, you find the, the value in it? I think it's important. I think it's definitely important about the film. I mean, it's, it's the, it's part of a resolution to the struggle with Killmonger, right? Because if T'Challa is going to, to fight against Killmonger's reign and the solutions that he saw, which would have been um, war in America, a civil war in America, he would have, you know, extrapolating his aims, Killmonger as the king of Wakanda would have come and gone to war with America um, using force. Or the world even, maybe. Right. And so if T'Challa is saying he stands against that, then when he comes to America, he's not going to replicate that ideology. He's going to, to try diplomacy. So I think it's it's the path, again, that he, he will take and try. And I think it's also... <laughs> It's also safe for American audiences, uh, I think even global audiences, to think that a country with all of this power wouldn't just come and try to take over the world, that it would enter in and negotiate, um, even though it might have the arsenal to do so. But again, T'Challa is not about weaponizing his foreign relations. He wants to try diplomacy. So I think it feels good to the world to say, oh, let's talk versus, you know, seeing Wakanda as a, an immediate threat. Uh, we, should, we should say he, he is at the end, like influenced um, by Killmonger in the sense that he does finally agree, like we need to uh, show the world that we're here and we need to try and kind of bring Utopia to the world. So he does yes. like uh, take that position. Absolutely. And, and, and that's a moral responsibility and a, a political one. And it plays out a little in uh, the Marvel Avengers movie because I keep referring to that because that's the cycle that we're in mm-hmm. right now. <laughs> but when um, there's Thanos who's has a global domination uh, story and Wakanda is included in that. So Wakanda cannot stay isolated in that or else just like every other place in the world it will be dominated by Thanos so they have Wakanda has to become an ally to the Avengers and support in this global struggle against the evil that Thanos is bringing okay well um Thank you very much for talking to me, Deirdre. It's been good You're very you. welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, if people wanted to find out about like, the Black Comics Collective, is there somewhere they should go and look? Yes, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram, The Black Comics Collective. We're there. And blackcomicscollective at gmail.com. Okay, cool. Thank you. That's the end of my conversation with Deirdre. As ever, if you've got any comments or questions, anything you'd like to talk to me about, you can get in touch. Uh, you can email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at utopianhorizons or on Facebook at facebook.com slash utopianhorizons. If you've enjoyed this episode, if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could take the time to give the podcast a review on um iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called, whatever you listen to this on, that would be very helpful. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, if you're if you 
wanting to hear more episodes then i am producing some uh, bonus ones which you can get access to at uh, patreon.com slash utopian horizons i will be back soon um i think i know what episode is going to be next but i'm going to stop saying stuff about what episode next because every time i say i'm going to do something um something comes up that makes it take longer or I mean I've done it at the beginning of the episode haven't I I've said Buckminster Fuller and Rosa Luxemburg but don't expect those soon I've got other stuff in the pipeline uh lots of guests in the pipeline lots of stuff that I'm planning to do that I'm excited about doing so uh yeah it's gonna be good whatever comes so yeah thank you for listening and I'll be back soon with another episode bye